What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. And I am very excited for today's guest, Ralph Izzo. He's the chairman and CEO of PSEG, my New Jersey utility. I invited him on several weeks ago so that we could talk about how to deal with the looming natural gas crisis this winter. I was afraid we were going to see bills spiking, schools closing, businesses shutting down, and massive public outrage. Instead, prices have collapsed, thank God. Natural gas prices are all the way back to their lowest level since July. I'd like to ask Ralph what happened, how much stress the grid is under, and how a specialist in nuclear fusion ended up running New Jersey's biggest public utility. With that, Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be with you. And I want to actually quickly start with your background, which is super interesting. And all of a sudden, nuclear fusion is getting more attention because people are hoping maybe we're really on to something this time. Um, can you just quickly give us the explainer of how you went from this sort of this incredible scientist to this high profile business executive? Yeah, well, if I had been an incredible scientist, I probably still would be a scientist. But uh, <laughs> the, the reality is that uh, I was a product of the 60s and 70s, so I, my driver's license came with uh, long wait, uh, waiting times on gasoline lines. So I decided early in my career that energy was going to be in my future. And at that point, uh, there was a recognition that we needed to move away from fossil fuels for energy security reasons. Uh, climate change was not a major factor at the time. And uh, there was a recognition that fusion energy was a essentially limitless supply of, of a safe, reliable energy if we could solve it. I mean, it, it is what powers the universe, right? I mean, our, our sun and every star is nothing more than a fusion energy power plant. Uh, so, so that's what made me pursue that uh, career. And I quickly learned that that was probably going to take many, many decades of continued research. And I, I, I just wanted something to, more tangible in the energy arena. Uh, so I began to pursue a career in energy policy, which then led to a career in a functioning energy utility. So, wow, more detail I mean, than you want to hear, but that, no, no, that listen, there's going to be there's a whole generation now shaped by the same concern, which is energy security, um, manifested through climate change, maybe. But I think everybody would absolutely understand, you know, why that would be an, an important journey for you. Do you keep up with? sort of the latest in that field today still? Because obviously I'm no expert, but I have seen headlines in the past year or so that, you know, you mentioned at the time, the, the promise of it seems several decades off. Are we getting closer to that point? I think we are. There's, so there seems to be three main thrusts taking place now, two of which have been going on for some time, but the third one is particularly exciting. One thrust is the continued commitment to what's called magnetic fusion energy. And that's taken on much more of an international flavor in recognition of the fact that no one nation wants to bear the full economic burden of the next big project. 
The second thrust is, is also a continuation of the past, which is what's called inertial confinement fusion. And that's largely uh, centered uh, at Livermore Labs in California. But the third area that appears to be completely new to me is sort of the emergence of entrepreneurs slash engineers who said, you know, we've let the physicists play with this for too many decades. Let's see if we can't figure out how to make this stuff smaller and more commercial and more meaningful. So there's a lot of venture money now going into fusion. So yes. I think a fresh set of eyes that may, that may surprise us in the not too distant future. Okay, I'm glad to hear you put it like that because in a way what you're almost suggesting is that the money is forcing the science instead of following the science. Yeah, that's a good way to, to, to say it, Kelly. I mean, I remember when I was pursuing my research studies, you know, the physics is very complicated and, and Perhaps I was guilty of uh, pursuing perfection and making it the enemy of the good. An engineer has more of an attitude of how do I fix this? And, and maybe as a physicist, my attitude was how do I more deeply understand this with the intent of ultimately fixing it? But uh, once you go down that rabbit hole of understanding it too much and, and you, you may lose sight of the how do I work around this? I, I, I don't want to be unfair to the physicists who've dedicated their lives to this. They've They've enriched our knowledge enormously, but it's, it's just great to see some more practical orientation being applied to it with real economic tests. So last question on this, what would the implications be if this technology finally becomes marketable? Oh my goodness. Well, so, so the fuel for fusion is, uh, is hydrogen or, or an isotope of hydrogen, typically deuterium. Uh, some places I may use tritium, but it's 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 abundant, right? I mean, it's essentially available to us in seawater. And unlike fission, uh, which I am a fan of and a staunch advocate of, the byproducts of nuclear fusion are typically helium, which is an, an inert gas. Now, you do have some activation of the physical fusion device, uh, but that activation, that radioactivity, if you will, uh, would have a disposal uh, sim simplicity associated with it because the half-life is measured in decades or at most a century, as opposed to the spent fuel of a fission reactor, which has a half-life that, that results in needing to carefully uh, dispose of it over thousands of years. So, so the environmental uh, impact of fusion is, is far more benign uh, than in, uh, any other technology from the point of view of there's no emissions the, 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 the product of the fusion reaction is an inert gas and the materials that need to be managed don't need to be managed in perpetuity. Uh, so you, you'd really have just this incredibly clean dispatchable power supply. Uh, but for the fact that right now we haven't achieved ignition and, and we haven't done it at any reasonable economics. So, so there, there's that that needs to be interesting. Well, I should, just so our audience is aware, you know, there was just a company called Helium that raised half a billion dollars last month, which was the biggest start, uh, fundraise ever by a private fusion company. And they think their technology will be commercially available by 2024. There's also a newly formed Fusion Industry Association, which tells you, you know, they think there's 35 different companies that are currently pursuing fusion around the world. So it does seem like all of a sudden something's changed. And I, I think your explanation helps me understand what's going on here. Right. Right. Yeah, that's exciting to be sure. Yeah. So let's pivot from that to uh, to the current state of things, which um, 
you know, New Jersey, my assumption would be we're mostly kind of a natural gas powered energy grid in terms of where our electricity comes from. Maybe some coal, maybe some nuclear. What, what's the current breakdown? Sure. So for in-state generation, New Jersey uh, gets 40% of its electricity from nuclear. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We are, we're a large nuclear state. Uh, we get about 7% from various renewables, mostly solar. And the remainder, which should be a little over 50%, comes from, the, uh, comes from natural gas. Now, that's for in-state generation. But as you know, Kelly, uh, New Jersey is part of a regional system. It's referred to as PJM because it was originally Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. Mm. It's states plus the District of Columbia. Uh, so, so PJM stands for nothing at this point other than uh, it, its legacy name. So uh, New Jersey then gets most of its power from PJM, which would, uh, which would introduce some coal to that mix, even though there's no in-state coal generation. And, and, and the amount of electricity it gets from different sources is really uh, quite variable. It's a function of what the cost of the uh, fuel is at that time because PGM dispatches its power on a least cost basis. So, so uh, the trend has clearly been more towards natural gas and there's been no new nuclear built uh, in the region for decades. So is our, oh, I'm sorry, I was gonna say is our, our nuclear supplies going offline um, as we've seen is happening across Europe and to some extent in California? So it, it depends on how we define we. If we define we as PJM, the answer is yes. We've seen plant retirements in Pennsylvania. Uh, but if we, if we focus on New Jersey, the answer is no. We have three nuclear plants in New Jersey. Uh, they're referred to as Salem 1 and 2 and Hope Creek. We operate all three of those. And the state has recognized that in order for it to meet its carbon reduction goals, uh, an essential part of that is not losing ground. So those three plants are responsible for 90% of the carbon-free energy in the state of New Jersey. And due to some imperfections in the way in which the wholesale power market is designed, they're at uh, tremendous competitive disadvantages. So the state has subsidized the continued operation of those plants. Uh, so so we, we've not seen any diminution in nuclear output in New Jersey, uh, but in PJM we have. So interesting. One observation I want to make first about PJM or this regional um, sort of power share is that the Texas power crisis really brought to mind how important um, the ability to transfer power across state lines is. So, you know, there's sort of positives and negatives from Texas point of view. The, the positive for them is by having their own grid, they can kind of set their own rules and the state's big enough that they should normally have all different ecosystems, you know, to draw power from. The bad is if they get a deep freeze over the whole state like they did last year, the entire grid can go down because it's not winterized. So, I mean, if it were your utility, I don't know what you do. I mean, they have to literally almost replace their, all of their equipment to winterize it, don't they? Well, so, so yeah, I mean, let's, the short answer to that is yes, but let's realize that they did ex experience some of the most extreme conditions that, um, that they've ever had before, unfortunately these extreme conditions are popping up all around the planet. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to climate change at some point in this conversation. Uh, yeah, but Texas's situation is that they have, uh, they're, they're not interconnected in a way that allows uh, them to be part of a broader regional grid. And therefore uh, they self-regulate 
the, the design of the market down there is radically different than the design of the market here in PJM. Texas is what's known as an energy only market, which means as a producer of electricity, you're only paid when you actually generate a kilowatt hour. PJM has two revenue streams that market participants receive. They get that same energy payment. So when you run, you get paid, but they also get this, this arcane language that we call a capacity payment. Think of it as an insurance payment. It's basically you get paid to exist because PJM knows that some days your mere existence will become necessary uh, for meeting some, some very high demand that is uh, due to some anomalous weather condition. And that insurance payment allows PJM to keep uh, an excess supply uh, of different types of fuel that can be extremely important when you get some extreme condition that imposes a limit on one particular fuel or another. So, so the market designs are quite different. And I think uh, quite candidly, the, uh, this part of the country is more accustomed to extreme weather conditions, both high heat and, and extreme cold. So we have theorized uh, long ago, and we also have the supply to meet those 100 degree humid days that, that uh, are experienced in the Southern part of the country. That's really interesting because that also, I think helps us set up the contrast to the power crisis in Europe right now you know, it's amazing to see how our U.S. natural gas prices have plunged in recent weeks. I mean, Ralph, my husband and I had to debate whether to turn the AC on last night. You know, it's right. December. <laughs> what, I know. <laughs> it's December 17th. Right. Well, you're a good customer because it was only 64 degrees as a high. So if you have your conditioning on 64 degrees, uh, maybe I should send some of my energy efficiency folks over to see you. But uh, <laughs> well, that's that's. That's actually a big topic of discussion in our household, and, and we're going to circle back actually to individual households and what they need to be doing right now. But yeah, could you explain in the resiliency that you talked about is so important. Um, can you explain the difference between why in the U.S. natural gas prices are low and we have uh, some resiliency with our power provision right now, whereas over in Europe, it's a complete crisis. It's a huge fiasco. I, I can't even put it in superlatives right. strong enough. I feel so bad for what's going on over there. Well, so first of all, we have to realize that throughout its history, natural gas has been largely a very regional market. Uh, and that's just because of the prior limitations on the movement of natural gas. Natural gas gets from one location to another by a pipeline. The, the notion of liquefying natural gas was not something that was actively pursued and, that, and, I, and I contrast that to oil, which has been a global market for, for many decades now. And that's because you could more easily transport oil. You put it in barrels, you put it on container, trip, uh, you put container vessels, and, and off you go. So, so natural gas typically was a function strictly of, okay, how much production do I have in the area and how much demand do I have in the area? And that determined the price. So you would never expect in the past for there to be any relationship between US natural gas prices and European natural gas prices. You probably wouldn't even expect to see any relationship between Northeast natural gas prices and Henry Hub gas prices down in Louisiana. What's changed, however, is the fact that technology has made it easier to liquefy and there's much more of a willingness on the part of countries to import or export liquefied natural gas. So it has more of a global uh, 
pricing to it, but, but clearly, as you can still see, not as tightly linked as oil is just given the bifurcation prices in the US and the prices in, in Europe. What appears to be happening in Europe is a, a set of very complicated factors, a cold winter followed by a hot summer, followed by increased demand as people came out of the pandemic, all of which uh, created some supply and demand imbalances coupled to a, a very strange weather pattern in the north, uh, in the Northern Sea that uh, resulted in wind not being able to meet its uh, full capability in terms of providing electricity, therefore burning even more natural gas uh, in power plants. And then last, but by no means least, and here I'm not an expert, some claims that perhaps some geopolitics entering into the equation in terms of the, uh, Russia's willingness to supply natural gas as a way to demonstrate the importance of a pipeline that it wants to see built uh, that has yet to receive full uh, permitting authority from uh, the EU. Uh, yeah, Nord Stream uh, 2. Yeah, exactly, no, exactly. Two factors though that I think, and, and first of all, let me emphasize what you just said, that once we could ship natural gas around the world, it's becoming a global market. Um, which is a really important point. And, you know, it, it, it always helps to have liquid markets. So if you need supply, you can get it. But the flip side of that is that people who should never be affected are all of a sudden seeing price spikes because of that situation in Europe you described. But the other couple of things I wonder about, number one, they've clearly gone um, in an accelerated way towards energy transition without enough redundancy capacity. And number two, and perhaps sort of the same thing, the price for carbon over there is at record highs. In other words, if you want to emit carbon, and usually that means you know, you're a power plant using natural gas to produce electricity, you're paying basically a tax for those emissions. So you're disincentivized to produce electricity, basically. I can't help but see it that way. And this is what regulators want. They want to disincentivize fossil fuels. They want a renewables transition. Um, it feels to me like these are important parts of why they're having energy production problems and price spikes. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that they realize, we realize that the number one, well, a large challenge associated with an all renewable electric system is the ability to control its dispatch. I think a major debate that's going on there uh, is between, for example, UK and France on one side and Germany on the other is the role of nuclear in the future. I hope the United States doesn't make the mistake that Germany made, which is to shutter its existing nuclear fleet, uh, because the reality is that when you try to replace a carbon-free source like nuclear with another carbon-free source like wind, which is the dominant uh, supply of uh, renewable energy in, in, in Europe, but you don't have the ability to dispatch it, uh, you, you, you make sure you don't lose grid stability by then building something that is dispatchable and that ends up being a fossil fuel fired power plant. So you, you end up retiring carbon free energy, replacing it to the greatest extent possible with other carbon free energy, but having to then supplement that with carbon emitting energy uh, typically natural gas, but sometimes, and I think in parts of Germany, it was lignite coal. I mean, it was just crazy. So, 
So once you start getting into major build of renewables, you have to come to grips with either the ability to store it or, or some other way to ensure the, the, the grid stability uh, that, that customers demand. And I think that they're seeing that problem uh, in, in, in surface right now with the, the challenging circumstances that, that you and I both described a minute ago. And I suspect, I haven't seen this, the, the data yet, but they're going to see uh, some increase in their carbon emissions uh, this year as a result of what they've had to do. Exactly. And I wonder what lessons we can draw from this, because the Biden administration is obviously incentivizing utilities to move in the same direction, increase their supply of renewables, get off of fossil fuels, get off of coal, to be sure. But are we going to run into the same problems? Well, to the credit of the Biden administration, though, they're following a plan that I think has a lot of common sense to it. It's, it's not dissimilar in any way to the five points that we proposed back in 2019. First of all, what we all should be doing is focusing on energy efficiency. Neither you nor I woke up this morning, Kelly, saying I can't wait to use a kilowatt hour. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, I, and, and, and I yet I run a utility, right? But I didn't wake up thinking that. Now, I did wake up thinking that there, uh, well, I woke up yesterday thinking I couldn't wait to go see Andre Bocelli in concert, and that required electricity to do that. And I was looking forward to our conversation today, and that requires electricity to do that. But if I could do all the things I want to do and use less electricity, I'm a pretty happy person. My bill is lower, my the environment is better off, and if I could design regulation that uh, compensates my shareholders, everybody wins. And I think that can be done. And and this administration has really trumpeted energy efficiency. The second thing they've done that's important is they've said, we cannot lose ground. We have to protect the existing nuclear fleet. And that's fundamentally different than what some countries have done uh, around the world, in particular, uh, as I said a moment ago, in Germany. And, and the administration has proposed and supported a production tax credit for existing nuclear plants. That's part of the Build Back Better program. And we hope that becomes law one day because that's going to be critically important in preserving what is today 50% of the carbon-free electricity in the nation. And then, of course, uh, the administration has been an advocate for production and investment tax credits for expanding renewables and the storage and transmission needed to make them part of a stable grid. So I think that that's critically different. And then last but not least, uh, the, the emphasis on tackling our number one source of carbon in America today, which is our transportation system, and trying to build out the infrastructure for electric vehicles. Candidly, the one piece of the puzzle that's missing in all the policy discussions here that I wish would be more uh, prominent would be a price on carbon, an economy-wide price on carbon. Because the reality is while we focus on electricity generation and transportation, if you had an economy-wide price on carbon, you would have the most efficient decisions being made by the marketplace. Maybe that's in agriculture. Maybe that's in industrial processes. Maybe it is in electricity generation. But I feel a lot better knowing that the market was making those decisions than a handful of very smart and well-intentioned people. But overall, I'd say that the administration's approach is quite intelligent. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I'm going to use this expression twice in just a short period of time. I don't want perfection to become the enemy of the good uh, by price on carbon. A couple of thoughts here. I mean, and I'm glad, I hope you're right, that they are looking at this cautionary tale and making sure it doesn't happen here. 
But the price on carbon, it feels like we're already getting that. You know, there are a couple of regional markets here. It's nowhere as high as it is in Europe. But because we're a global market, we're feeling the effects of a high carbon emissions price without any compensation for the lower income consumers who are going to have to pay higher gasoline bills, potentially higher, you know, home heating bills as a result of that. And if you go back to the cap and trade bill that was defeated early on in the Obama years, it was going to use the revenues to pay and compensate those uh, households for the higher cost of energy that, you know, if you raise the cost of emitting carbon or burning fossil fuels, you're going to raise the price of fossil fuels. I just can't see other, any other way around it. So I'm just concerned that we've sort of forgotten the point, which is how do you make it more affordable for households? I mean, you know how much outrage there is right now about the high cost of everything and is now the right time to move towards, you know, a price of carbon in that environment. Sure. You know, I mean, you're, you're spot on in many regards. Uh, yeah, we do have a price on carbon, uh, in, but we have far too many implicit, buried, obscure prices on carbon. So I, here's a, a, a snarky quiz I give everyone, and I, I pick on New Jersey because I love the state, uh, but I caution people, uh, don't think it's just New Jersey because I could do this, I'm sure, for everyone, every, every state in the nation. Is the price on carbon in New Jersey $400 a ton? $100 a ton, $17 a ton, $5 a ton, or negative $125 a ton. And the snarkiness comes in because I don't give the real answer. The real answer is all the above. Mm. Get the subsidies for rooftop solar, it's the $400 a ton. If I look at the subsidies for energy efficiency, it's negative $125 a ton. I won't take you through each of those elements. It would just chew up some valuable time. But that's not the way a market can behave that's not the way to get an efficient market by A, hiding the price and B, making it different for uh, different choices. Exactly. All the choices seem rational uh, when you don't look at the price, right? There's a subsidy stream and it's like, oh, okay, I, sh I should do this. I should put this panel on my rooftop. It makes sense. Well, not from a societal point of view. So the notion of the impact on lower income is critically important. That's why we're champions of universal access to energy efficiency being done through the utility. But more importantly, once you put a price on carbon and you come up with a mechanism for collecting it, then your policymakers can decide what to do with that. It could be cap and it could be tax and dividend, right? You can give it back to lower income, uh, ease their utility bills, ease their uh, support payments for gasoline or, 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 uh, or the SNAP program or a variety of different ways to ease the burden on those families that can least afford to do it. I, I don't think that should become an impediment for, uh, for putting a price on cabin, the redistribution of it back to those who need it most, that is. I suppose the final comment on this, because there's so much else I want to ask in the next few minutes that we have, but I worry about the middle income household squeeze, where there's existing programs for very low income folks like LIHEAP, but mm -hmm. for the middle income households who are facing higher costs on, you know, these kind of important inputs, but don't really have a lot of support for that. You know, it, it just, I wonder kind of, what do we do? And I also, I often hear people, as much as we talk about paying it out in a dividend, a lot of people don't want to do that because they say, then you're not offering any incentive to lower energy usage. So sometimes I hear from the people in charge that they want high prices for the consumer. They're not necessarily going to subsidize it because if you subsidize it, people will just keep using energy. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, raising people's bills uh, with, with no uh, clear objective or, or rational uh, distribution of, 
of the of the pain uh, behind it. However, in general, though, Kelly, I am a fan of taxing bad things and not taxing good things. I think wealth creation is a good thing. I think pollution is a bad thing. So once again, at the risk of repeating myself, if you tax pollution, and we've now proved conclusively that carbon dioxide, methane, and various other uh, carbon-based air emissions are pollutants, and then you could redistribute that in a way that mitigates uh, some of the uh, some of the things that we like, uh, I don't know, I, you, you, you pick your favorite policy, lower income tax rates, increase further uh, uh, the subsidization of college educations, uh, uh, improve uh, medical provision uh, during this horrible virus that we're encountering. I mean, I think, I think if you make people pay for bad things, namely polluting the air, and then you take that money and put it to use in good areas, then you've done society a favor. Well, and on that note, and we've talked about energy efficiency where, you know, so much of the change can be made in such smaller, in a way, cheaper and incremental ways that really add up to a big effect. So uh, how do we get our house to not, you know, to not <laughs> heat up as quickly in the middle of a December heat wave? You know, it's, it's, there's so much that can be done that's so simple. Yeah, you were kind enough to mention earlier, my background is a as a fusion energy scientist and my graduate degrees were in plasma physics. So immediately when people talk to me about energy efficiency, they expect me to talk about some highly, highly sophisticated technologies that they should deploy. It's like, no, check your windows, see how old they are and what kind of air intrusion you have around them. Uh, Do you have a programmable thermostat that remembers when you forget to lower its setting at night when you go to sleep because you, you're under the blankets, you don't need the same amount of heat or conversely in the summer, uh, goes up a couple of degrees because you're not running around the place uh, getting overheated. Have you changed your light bulbs? You know, the ones that our grandparents used, uh, lighting technologies come a long way in terms of being able to uh, illuminate the house wonderfully and use fractions of the electricity. Once you've gotten past all that, then maybe you can do some fancy sensors. You can do some, uh, some even more sophisticated thermostats. Think about that purchase decision the, the next time your refrigerator needs to be replaced, uh, short-termism versus long-termism. So it, it's not rocket science. It's really some very simple things we can do. Uh, I'd start with the building envelope. Then I'd look at the major energy consuming devices, which is basically your heating, air conditioning, and lighting systems. Yeah. Well, the thing is, my husband and I definitely would be good candidates for a smart thermostat, but we don't want Google to be tracking us all over the house. Like, is there an, another option that's both smart, but doesn't allow kind of big tech to... Oh, yeah. Oh, Kelly, you know better than that. Do you have a, do you have a smartphone? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, you're being tracked everywhere. <laughs> so give it up. But it doesn't, I mean, is that the only, is everyone just going, all right, I'll just put in a nest and, you know, I mean, and then they can be hacked. I don't know. I just, I can't get over it. Oh my goodness. I hear this all the time. I just find it amazing that people are so willing to have 40 apps on their cell phone, have three different social media platforms, and then they worry about being tracked. (laughs) It's different because it's your house, you know, like it knows, it knows if you're in your bedroom or if you left or if you know you haven't been home in 12 hours you know yeah well okay then, then just get a programmable thermostat that is in the nest that you can uh you can just tell it what time you wanted to do certain things 
Yeah, and my husband has done that. Uh, we just need to we just need to be better about it. Um, so the original question I wanted to ask you if natural gas prices were still double the level where they are today was going to be how does everybody just reduce household consumption to ease pressure on the grid? And I think you've kind of addressed that. My last question to you would be how would you describe the current resiliency of PSEG? You know, especially as I'm sure you're going to increase renewables in the years to come. You have tons of households trying to do solar. California just said it might drop its net metering payouts. So I don't know if that's going to change, uh, spread around the country and change the adoption rates. And my husband and I looked into it, but, you know, it's expensive. There's not great storage. And we think, well, what if a utility goes solar and then we don't have to? So um, just a comment, if you could, on kind of where we're going in the next couple of years. Yeah, so we have a three-part vision of the future. Uh, part one is that we really want to help less electricity and natural gas and not change their lifestyle, just use less of the product. And we are making a $1 billion investment over the next three years in energy efficiency to help bring that about. The second thing we want to do is make sure that what is used, because you cannot conserve your way to zero, is cleaner than ever before. And in the old days, that meant you know, no fine particulates, no SO2, no NOx. Now it means no CO2. Uh, and, and for that, we're trying to preserve our nuclear fleet and we're adding uh, renewable energy in the form of offshore wind. The third and final piece is we want to make sure it's delivered more reliably than ever before, because sadly, Kelly, we're at the point now where climate change is having an impact. We're seeing storms the likes of which we've never seen before. And yet people are more dependent on their electricity than they ever were before. So we have to make absolutely sure that the electricity is there not only during bright, sunny days, but it's there soon after major, major storms. So uh, use less, use cleaner, and have it be delivered more resiliently than ever. And that's where we're putting $3 billion a year in terms of capital deployment uh, across that whole spectrum of, uh, of targets and, and our vision of the future. Well, it's a huge challenge. Um, you probably have one of the most difficult jobs because people's lives really depend on it. And with extreme weather and everything else going on, it's only getting more difficult. Ralph, thanks for taking some time to talk to me about it today. I hope we can do this again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Ralph Izzo is the chairman and CEO of PSEG. Thanks for listening, everybody. And be sure to follow the Exchange podcast for more conversations like this. And to catch my show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.